Take your Bible this morning, Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. We're starting a new series this morning called Clearly, and I'm really excited about it. You know, Cody joked, but it is true. Every pastor that's in the pulpit today is talking about 2020 vision, you know, (laughs) because 2020 vision. Uh, (laughs) You know, you can only do that in 2020, I guess. And and so uh, we're not calling it 2020 vision, we're calling it clearly, (laughs) because we want to have clarity this year about what God wants us to do. We want to have clarity about who Jesus Christ is. We want to have clarity about what God has done for us. And we as a church need to get some clarity on just kind of ministry and, man, what we really need to be about and maybe some things we don't need to be about because, because those aren't necessarily the Great Commission as, as God has laid out in His Scripture. And so uh, this morning I want to start the series off with a message entitled, Christ, Seeing Christ Redemption Clearly. And we're going to look at the story in Luke 17, and I want to read the text And uh, if you don't have a Bible, no problem. Most of the stuff's going to be on the screen this morning. But I want to encourage you from the book of Luke, uh, this story of the ten lepers that we see in Luke chapter 17. If you'll pick it up in verse 11, it's on the screen. The Bible says, And it came to pass, as he, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give God, excuse me, to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee what? Whole. Okay. And so, you know, let me just set the story up as we kind of get ready to dig into the scriptures just a little bit. The context of what's happening here is Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you were to read earlier earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, The Bible says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he was trying to go through a village of Samaria, of of the Samaritans, but they wouldn't receive him. And so you need to know in the Bible that the Bible is a lot like our modern culture. There was still some cultural division in the Bible. As a matter of fact, Jesus is a a Jew. The Samaritans Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. In other words, non-Jewish. And so when Jesus kind of rolled through their village, they saw his face and they were like, well, you're Jewish, we're Samaritans, you can't, you can't come through here. And it was a cultural division. It, they actually wouldn't let him pass through their village. And so even in the first century, you see that, man, people are just people. People are just people. And, uh, and, and interestingly, that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was discriminated against culturally, racially, if you will. Uh, In John chapter 4, there's a really interesting story about a woman at a well in Samaria. And Jesus comes to her and asks for water from this woman in the well. Many of you know that story, John chapter 4. And when when Jesus shows up, this woman is so taken back that this Jewish man would, would approach her and actually talk to her and actually even come into her village. And she says in John chapter 4, listen... Uh, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, 
which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Again, it shows us that in the first century, man, people are people, and, and there's all kind of division. And this is important because the story in Luke chapter 17 introduces us to some men that are lepers. They're, they have a disease called leprosy. And we know at least one of those men was a Samaritan. That's really important to the story. The other nine were probably Jewish, but at least one of those men were, were, was a Samaritan, not a Jew. And, and, and you're going to see in just a second why that makes uh, all the sense in the world. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, the first blank is this. We're going to be introduced to a devastating disease. And we're going to unpack this story, and we're going to make practical application. Most of you have probably never had leprosy, nor never will have leprosy. It's not a very common disease in the U.S. It certainly is prevalent in other places. Verse, verse 11 says this, It came to pass, as Jesus went into Jerusalem, he passed through the midst, right through the middle, of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers. And the Bible says that those men stood afar off, and they had to because they had this, this horrible disease of leprosy. And there's 10 of these men. And if you're a student of the Bible, numbers mean something in the Bible. We're not, we're not reading anything into it, but 10 in the Bible, the number 10 is generally associated with the Gentile nations. And you see that in Genesis chapter 10, you see in Acts chapter 10, uh, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know at least one of these lepers, the, the 10th leper, is a Samaritan. In other words, he's a Gentile, culturally. And these men were also lepers. The Bible tells us that they had a disease of the flesh. If you study the Bible, leprosy is a horrible disease. It disfigures your body. It actually deteriorates. It's a, it's a, it destroys the nervous system. It literally wastes away your flesh. Uh, there are pictures. I wouldn't suggest you necessarily Google leprosy, but if you do, you're going to find people that literally their bodies are falling apart, fingers falling off, feet falling off. I mean, I mean, it's just a horrible disease of the flesh, face disfigured. It's contagious. It affects everything and every part of your body. It's a damaging and, and damning disease, if you will, and it has a tremendous devastation to it. Well, here's what we need to learn this morning. Leprosy in the Bible is a great picture or type of sin. You see, sin in our life is a devastating disease. It, it destroys our flesh. It destroys our, our bodies. It, it affects how we sense and feel things or can't sense and feel things. It is the great equalizer among men. And, and I already told you, like in the first century, culturally, there's division. You have Jews and Samaritans that are separated culturally. Hey, you can't come through our village. We won't go through your village. You know what's interesting in this story? All 10 of these men had leprosy. And of those 10 men, we know at least one of those men was a Samaritan, which means the other nine were probably Jewish. And interestingly, they're dwelling together. You know, sin has an equalizing effect on the human race. It really is able to put us all on a level playing field. Whether you're black, white, whether, whether you grew up rich or poor, whether you're from the south or from the north, whether you're an American or an international, it doesn't really matter. Sin has an equalizing effect on every one of us, on the human race. And it puts us all in the same boat. And, and I just want to make a, a point right here. 
Here's a key thought. It's not in your notes, but just listen. It is amazing that in our desperation, how unified we can become. When I read this story, what I see is 10 men that are absolutely devastated. And their misery and their desperation actually brought them together. All of a sudden, being a Jew and a Gentile didn't have as much meaning because they all had leprosy and they're all going to die. Isn't that interesting? In our, in our brokenness and in our sinfulness and, and sometimes even in our desperation, that's actually the times that we're, we're most unified, which is kind of backwards, isn't it? It's kind of weird like that. But that's what's happening. The great prophet Shakespeare, that's a joke, by the way. Okay. <laughs> The great theologian, by the way, Shakespeare didn't write the King James Bible. Let me just throw that out there. Okay, moving on. The great, I know, it's a shocker. It is a shocker. But this great theologian said this, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. Uh, the modern translation of that would be misery loves, loves company. And it is interesting in this context and in this story that these men are all desperate because they all have the same disease. And it actually brings them together in unity. No self-respecting Samaritan would ever have anything to do with a Jew. And vice versa. And yet, because of leprosy, they're all on a level playing field. And, and it destroys cultural racism. And it destroys traditional norms. Because it's a devastating disease. Well, sin is like that. Sin puts us all on, on a level playing field. Whether we realize it or not, actually, the sooner we realize it, the better. Because it makes us realize our need for Christ. So here's the second thought. Look, and, and I think, again, from the story, this is an interesting thought. It is equally amazing that in our blessing, how divided we can become. Now listen, you've already read the story with me. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ heal all ten of these men from their leprosy. But that blessing actually resulted in division. Because nine of those men went one way. And one came back to Christ. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that our blessing actually sometimes divides us more than our sin and our, our, our desperation? You see, churches experience this on a weekly basis. Sunday morning is generally the most divided day of the week in our country. Culturally, racially, socioeconomically, culturally. These things ought not so to be, brethren. Actually, our blessings in Christ are the very things that should unify us and should bring us together. And, and so I, all this is introduction, but I just think it's really interesting. These lepers are a type of just a sinful man that needs redemption in Christ. And as Christ responds to their request, it actually creates more division. Kind of crazy. Well, the Bible says that these men that were lepers, they stood afar off. Now, if you were to go back and read the book of Leviticus, I'm sure none of you have done that this week, but if you were to read the book of Leviticus, it's all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the, the sacrifices and all those different things and the laws of cleanliness. Well, in Leviticus 13, it does say that if you have leprosy, that you had to actually put a covering over your face and you had to audibly cry out, unclean, unclean. You had to profess that you are unclean so no one else would get near you lest they also catch that plague of leprosy. Does that make sense? How embarrassing. How shameful. I mean, listen, this is a disease that, that really made you unclean 
and defiled. It, it, it separated you from other people. It made you alone. I mean, listen, it's a devastating disease. And, and, and listen, sin does that in our life. It, it actually separates us from Christ. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, and I don't think it's on the screen. Maybe it is. It is on the screen. But in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says that Christ is our peace. And he's made both one and hath broken down the, the middle wall of partition between us, between the Jew and the Gentile. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of, of twain, of two, one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off. And let me just tell you, in the Bible, there were some people called the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They didn't grow up with the commandments. They didn't grow up with Moses' writings. They didn't grow up with the Old Testament. They were just pagans. And God says that those guys were so far away. They, they were afar off from God. But in Christ, they're actually nigh to God. And then God says in the same verse that there were some people that were nigh to God. They were near God. And historically speaking, that would be the nation of Israel, the Jews. They had the commandments. They had the Old Testament writings. They had the miracles and the signs and the wonders. And they had the prophets. Man, they were so close to having a right relationship with God. And yet, they weren't close enough. Because those Old Testament laws and those Old Testament sacrifices and all the things that they tried to do, it couldn't make them clean before God. They had to turn to Christ. And I, and I just want to make the point this morning that no matter whether you're far off or you're close, in Christ we can be nigh. We're, we're, we're reconciled together in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And of course, he's foreshadowing what he's going to do uh, in the body of Christ Here's the reality, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The reality is that sin affects every one of us. We have all been partaker of that disease. When, when, the, when the Levitical law required a, a man that had leprosy to come before the priest, all the priest could do would be to look at that man and say, Yep, that's leprosy. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Stay away. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was horrible. All the priest could do was to pronounce him unclean. And that's all the law can do. That's all the Old Testament law can do to us. All, all the scripture, all the Old Testament law can do to us is just say that we're guilty. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 3, the Bible says that whatsoever th th things the law saith, the Old Testament writings, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This devastating disease affects every one of us, whether we realize it or not. The sooner we realize it, the sooner we'll come to the second point, which is this, a desperate cry for mercy. You see, those lepers, however long they'd had it, had had enough. They realized that I'm in, a, in an incurable, desperate state physically. It pictures for us an incurable, desperate state spiritually and here's what those lepers did in, in, in verse 13. The Bible says they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, clarity, clearly, when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves unto the priest and it shall come to pass as they, as they went, they were cleansed. 
couple of things that are important in this. Number one, they said, have mercy on us. Now listen, salvation, this is a great picture of salvation. Somebody that has leprosy, which is a picture of sin, crying out to the only one who could heal them. The Old Testament priest couldn't heal them. If they went to the temple, all the priests could do was say, eh, you're unclean. There was no sacrifice. There was no ointment. There was nothing you could do to fix that. So they went to the only person that could fix it, the Lord Jesus Christ. And their cry was really theological. Jesus, have mercy on us. That's it. Salvation's pretty simple. Salvation's pretty simple. When you realize you have a devastating disease called sin, it'll, it'll bring you to the place where ultimately, prayerfully, you cry out for mercy from the one who's able to save you. That's all salvation is. Listen, they said, have mercy on us. Can I just tell you that, that salvation is an individual thing? So if you're here and part of Community Fellowship Baptist Church, if you would say, hey, I'm part of Community Fellowship, we're all saved. We've all experienced God's mercy. Well, that's a dangerous place because, because you need to be saved. You need to experience God's mercy personally. And all that comes from is, is just asking Christ to save you and to have mercy on you. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, I was 21 years old, and I didn't grow up in church, and many of you have heard my story, but, you know, I didn't grow up in a religious context necessarily. Uh, at 21 years old, someone shared the gospel with me, and I realized that my sin was really sinful. And that devastation of sin became a reality, and I realized I didn't want to die and go to hell, separated from, from God forever. And so I just asked God to have mercy on me for Jesus' sake. That's all I did. That's all I did. I prayed and just believed that Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient for my sin. And friends, he saved me. And he'll save you. You have to come to the place where you cry out for mercy. And by the way, Jesus was looking because the Bible says when Jesus saw them, he saw them. He was looking. He's looking for those that would turn to him. And if you're willing, he's willing. All you have to do is cry out and ask for mercy. And then Jesus does something really weird if you read the story. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, we've already established that the priest couldn't do anything other than pronounce them clean or unclean. And, and nine of them actually went to the priest. And, and, and so if you were to study Leviticus 14, again, for time's sake, we won't read it all. But all they would have done was, was gone to the priest, the Old Testament priest. They would have shown up at the temple scheduled an appointment, and he would have looked at him and said, yep, you're clean. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> That's all he could do. Uh, and here's, here's where I'm going with that. Look, the Old Testament temple priest couldn't do anything. The, the true priest was in their presence. The true priest, the high priest, the priest can bring about healing, not just pronounce you unclean, but also make you clean, was the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. All they did was cry out for mercy. And, and listen, God answers that kind of prayer. And again, Jew and Gentile were made clean by Jesus Christ. And those of you that are students of the Bible, you know, you know the point there. Okay, so then all that's introduction so we can get here. Because what we see now is we see a devoted Samaritan. We see a devoted Samaritan. And this Samaritan for us pictures what it means to be a true, faithful Christian 
and really understand what salvation is in your own lives. This Samaritan saw his redemption clearly. Verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice he glorified God, and he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Only one. So what can we learn from this devoted Samaritan? Well, the first thing that we can learn this morning is this. Clarity of Christ's redemption begins with personal perspective. If you want to see Christ clearly, you have to look at your own life first. What has Christ done to you and for you? That's the question on the table. This man was a leper. He had no future. He had no hope. He was isolated. He had to pronounce, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. He was full of shame. He was separated from any other congregation other than his fellow leper. And now, the Bible says that when he saw that he was healed, well, it redirected his life. It changed his direction. It changed what he focused on. You see, you see here's the motivation that we got to understand. The motivation to turn your life to Jesus Christ is when you realize what he's done to you and for you at the moment of salvation. Can I get an Amen. Right there. Listen, the thing that will motivate you to give your life back to Christ is when you take a minute and actually realize what he's done for you. Now, see, most Christians don't want to stop and see what's, do- what's been done. They want to get saved and then keep going with their life. Hello? But this Samaritan said, you know what? <laughs> I can't help but look- notice I don't have this disease anymore. I can't help but notice that my body has been healed. I can't help but notice that all of a sudden I don't have to cry unclean, unclean anymore. Hello? Hello? Listen, when you, when you understand what Christ has done for you, well, that motivates you to turn your life back to Him. And there's no preaching, there's no conference, there's no discipleship, there's no program, there's no book that can make you do that until you look at what Christ has done for you. But when you look... And friend, you need to take the time to look. When you, when you really understand that He's redeemed you, that He's forgiven you, that He's made you clean, that He's given you hope, He's given you the ability to have relationship and fellowship with other believers. Listen, you go from being cursed to being cleansed. You go from being an outcast to being accepted. And listen, you go from being destroyed to being redeemed. Your pastor can't motivate you. But Jesus sure can. That'll make you give your life back to Christ. That'll make you understand that your salvation was for a purpose. That's clarity. Number two, clarity of Christ's redemption begins to redirect my life in biblical repentance. When I understand what Christ has done, when I personally have perspective of what God saved me from, the sin that He saved me from, friends, listen. It begins to redirect my life in biblical repentance. How do you know that? Well, the Bible says, when this man saw that he had been healed, the first thing that he did was that he turned back. He turned back. In other words, he turned his back upon some things, and he turned toward some other things. 
What did he turn his back upon? Listen, there were 10 of these men. And the Lord said, go show yourselves to the priest. And they all started going until this one guy looked down and said, oh my, what has been done to me? And he turned his back on the nine and turned toward the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what repentance is. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. It's a turning around. You could say that he turned his back on the majority because Christ is worth it. You know, in our culture, it's really hard. It is really hard in our culture. We are in the last days, and I understand that. But it really is hard to really serve God and stay faithful to God and live holy and do what God wants because we have such a culture that professes that they know Christ and yet live completely opposite to Christ. It is hard. But I want to encourage you, you can do it even if you're the one. You can be the one. You don't have to go with the majority. All you have to do is realize what Christ has done for you. And when you realize that, you have a great motivation to actually turn your back on some things and turn toward Christ. He turned his back on the majority. He turned his back on going to the temple, to the priest. In other words, he turned his back on organized religion so he could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance doesn't end at the moment of salvation. It actually begins. A life of repentance should begin at the moment of salvation. Here's the truth. Look, and here's the key point, and I think it's in your notes. What is in front of you will always determine what is behind you. What is in front of you will always determine what is behind you. In other words, if you turn your back on the world, you will turn yourself to Christ. But if you turn your back from Christ, you will turn toward the world. And you are either in one of two places this morning. You know where you're going based on what's in front of you. If the Lord's in front of you and you're turning toward Him then by default you're turning your back to sin and to the world and to your old self and even the majority. And that's, a, that's where God wants us. Psalm 119 and verse 59 says, I thought on my ways and I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. How many people were, were cleansed in the story? Ten. Ten out of ten. You could say 100% were cleansed. How many turned back? Just one. Percentage-wise, if you're a math nerd like me, 10%. We're not talking about tithing. Don't freak out. Okay. 10% turn back. Look, I'm not saying that Luke 17 is a uh, you know, breakdown of our culture of Christianity. But I do know that Jesus heals every person that asks him. I also know that there's a lot that don't actually give their life back to him. You know, that's, that's where we have to ask ourselves, are we part of the one or are we part of the nine? The answer to that question is what's in front of you. Hopefully it's Jesus. Okay, number three, look, clarity of Christ's redemption empowers my voice for biblical praise. And we're going to hurry through these last couple of points. Look, clarity of Christ's redemption. When I understand what Christ has done for me at the moment of salvation, it empowers my voice for biblical praise. Here we go. The Bible says that when this man saw that he was healed, he turned back, and then with a loud voice, he glorified God. Okay, and again, 
Biblical praise is powerful, but the motivation comes from what you realize Christ has done to and for you. And, and that is a direct, probably, there's probably a direct correlation between what you realize and the, and the volume of your voice. Okay, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, and all these creatures and all these people are surrounding the throne of God. And verse 12 says, they are saying with a somber church voice. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they're saying with a loud voice. And by the way, here's what they're saying. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. Listen, when you understand what Christ has done to you and for you, it will cause you and empower you to raise your voice in biblical praise. I mean, listen, he is the one that's worthy. And he alone is the one that's worthy. And he is worthy. And that means we should crank up the volume and rip off the knob. Because listen, heaven is going to be full of biblical praise. And whether you like it or not, it's going to be loud. So get used to it. And God will give you a glorified body where it won't bother you like it does now, by the way. You have, the, you have the opportunity now to perfect your praise, and your praise is a direct correlation to your perspective. And I'm just going to throw the verse in here because I have to throw it in here. Luke 19, not everybody gets excited about loud praise and worship, I understand that. There are Pharisees everywhere. Oh, did that, did that, did that land somewhere? Excuse me. Luke chapter 19 says this. When he, when Jesus was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God somberly so nobody would hear. No, no, no. The disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had what? Perspective. Hmm. Saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of, the, uh, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. It's a little too loud in church today, Jesus. You tell them to turn that down. <laughs> well, uh, if you ever doubted what the Lord thinks about volume, Luke 19 has got it. He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Creation itself would cry out. In other words, why don't you stop being a Pharisee and start praising? How about that? Okay, well, i got to move on before I get in trouble. I'm just telling you, biblical praise is powerful and it's pointed to God. It's not to men, it's not for men, it's for the Lord because He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. Number next is this, I think number four. Clarity of Christ's redemption. 
humbles my heart for biblical worship. It humbles my heart for biblical worship. You say, Jay, we already talked about praise and worship. No, praise is different than worship. And worship is different than praise. How do you know that? I went, I went to school for this. You ready? How do I know they're different? They're spelled different. <laughs> they have different letters. And if you can figure that out, you can be a preacher too. Okay, so <laughs> clarity of Christ's redemption humbles my life for biblical worship. So this, this man that was healed, he, he understood what Christ had done to him and for him. And it caused him to turn. And it caused him to, to praise God with a loud voice. And it also caused him to fall down on his face at Jesus' feet. That's humility. That's submission. That is biblical worship. Worship is not a song. Yes, listen, part of singing and raising our hands is part of worship. That's submission to God. But you don't have to have instruments. You don't have to have amplification or drums or guitars or bass. You don't have to have any of that or slide. God forbid we, we don't have slides. That has nothing to do with worship. Worship has to do with your heart. Being submissive and surrendered to God Almighty. In Genesis chapter 17, the Bible says that Abram fell on his face. Can you look what happens next? When he fell on his face, what happened? God talked with him. You know this man that got healed? He positioned himself at Jesus' feet. Can I tell you what's right above a man's feet? It's his mouth. When you position yourself at the feet of Jesus, you put yourself in position to receive his word. You can't, you can't, you can't hear his word if you're not positioned humbly at his feet. Abram fell on his face, and it was then and only then that God talked to him, and God talked with him. Many of you know the story in Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha, one of my wife's favorite stories. These two sisters were, were serving, and, and Jesus was in the house, and uh, Martha is trying to get, you know, the, the cheese board ready, you know, with all the snacks and associated things. And, uh, and she's over there just washing up all the dishes and all the things. And, and Mary has positioned herself at the feet of Jesus. And the sister gets mad if it, in the story. As a matter of fact, Martha asked Jesus, hey, can you tell my sister to get up and help me? And, and Jesus said, no, actually, Mary has chosen that better part. This is the needful thing, that she's at my feet. When she sat at Jesus' feet, the Bible says that she heard his word. And let me just make the point. Listen, I'm glad you're here today. I really am glad you're here. I'm glad every one of you are here. But just because you're here doesn't mean you're going to hear God's word. Just because somebody opens the Bible, it doesn't mean that you're actually going to hear what God wants you to hear. You actually have to position your life and your heart humbly at the feet of Jesus to actually hear his word. And it doesn't matter who the preacher is. It doesn't matter what the event is. I've sat in church many times since I've been saved and not had my heart at the feet of Jesus, and the whole service went. And the very thing I needed was, was coming out of the pulpit, and I missed it. I missed it because I didn't put myself at the feet of Jesus. This leper said, you know what? I'm going I'm to engage in the worship service part of this, the singing and the praise. I'm going to sing, and then I'm going to submit. Lastly, clarity of Christ's redemption. Lastly, it helps me express my thanks in biblical thanksgiving. It helps me express my thanks in biblical thanksgiving. Because so, the last thing that he did, the Bible tells us, is that he gave him thanks. Now, now, we live in a culture 
of unthankfulness, don't we? I mean, except for Chick-fil-A, you know, okay? You know, you go through Chick-fil-A and it's their pleasure to serve you and all those different things. And you say, you say thank you, they say my pleasure, and now you just say thank you because they have to say my pleasure. Okay, so you do it at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 3, closed on Sunday, by the way. I didn't know if you know that or not. Look at verse 1. Second Timothy 3 verses 1 to 2 says this. This know also that in the last days, here we are, perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. And, and look at this other characteristic of the last days. Unthankful and unholy. And the list goes on. You know, God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18 that in everything we're to give thanks. And I was reminded by a brother yesterday that not only that, we are supposed to give thanks for everything, because a lot of times I'll preach that and say, you know what, in every, you don't have to give God thanks for the bad things in your life, but in the midst of those bad things, give him thanks. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 says, giving thanks always for all things. And you know why you can thank God for all things? Because Romans 8 says that all things are going to work together for good. To him that love God and him that are, them that are called according to his purpose. So even as bad as it may get, and thank you, brother, for pointing that out yesterday, I can thank God in the midst of my circumstances, no matter how good or bad they are, because all things are going to work together for good, for God's glory. Man, biblical thanksgiving is a, it's a biblical thing. we got two daughters. My wife and I have two daughters, nine and four, and, uh, and they're, they're kids. And, and, of course, when they start sitting in service, I can't use them as illustrations anymore. But, you know, Friday night is our family night, and we enjoy going out and eating together and having ice cream and all the different things. And, and, uh, and they've learned over the last couple of years to really appreciate that. Early on, they're kids. You expect it. Actually, you want more. It doesn't matter what you do, where you eat at, how much ice cream you eat. Oh, give me more. <laughs> and now they've de they're developing an attitude of, of thankfulness, and it's a blessing to my heart uh, to see that when they just say thank you for what they've been given. A lot of Christians need to develop that. Uh, the way you develop it is you just look at what the Lord's done to you and for you. And then it's real easy. He saved me from my sin. He pulled me out of the miry clay. He set me upon a rock. He put me in a position to fellowship with other people so that I'm not alone any longer. He gave me a purpose in life. He is my song and my rejoicing. And I can hear his word. Well, look at verse 17, and, and then we're done. Look, the disappointment of unmet expectations. I wish the story ended, but it doesn't end. <laughs> like, like the Lord just kind of keeps going. Verse 17, Jesus answered. And when Jesus answers, you've got to pay attention. The Bible says, we're not ten cleansed. Listen, but where are the nine? They're not found that return to give God, give glory to God, save this Stranger. In other words, a Samaritan. What was Jesus' expectation of these ten that were healed? That all ten would have returned, would have glorified him, would have given him thanks, would have submitted themselves at his feet. His expectation was that all ten would have returned to him. Now this is how you know Jesus is a Baptist. Because he's counting. 
You can tweet that later if you want to, whatever. <laughs> Jesus was a Baptist, man. He was counting. But can I just say this in all seriousness? He was counting. He was counting. He knew how many had been healed. And he was actually looking for a corporate assembling of everybody that had been made clean. Hmm. You see, the real issue of whether or not we give our life back to Christ after we get saved, the real issue is not anything that you think it is. The only issue after your salvation is whether or not God is going to get the glory from your life. And I'll, I'll lovingly tell you that in this passage, only one man glorified God with his life after he was cleansed. The issue is God getting the glory. It's not about me getting saved and then, and then pursuing everything else in life that I think I should pursue and asking God's stamp of approval on it or, or God's blessing on it. That's not the point. The point is, is God going to get the glory for the rest of my life as one who's been made clean? So here's the last one and then we're done. Look, the directive because, you know, they all have to start with the same letter. The directive given to the Samaritan. Verse 19. He said unto him, unto the one. By the way, he could only say it to the one because only the one came back. Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Two things I want to I give you and, and then we're done. God gave him a commission. He told him to rise and go. Every born-again believer has been commissioned by God, whether you realize it or not. If you're saved today and you've experienced Christ's forgiveness in your life, God has actually commissioned you, congratulations, to be a part of His mission. Arise, go thy way. And when God gets the glory out of your life, well, God gets you going. He wants you to be about His business he, he tells you to go in, in Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1. You guys know the verses. The point is, God wants you to go. The second thing is that this man, unlike the others, got comfort. He says, thy faith had made thee whole. Uh, it's the same word well, or it's the same word that's translated healed in your New Testament. This man saw that he had been healed, but now he knows he's been healed. And here's why that's important. There's a direct connection between faith and being made whole. You see, a lot of Christians today don't have that assurance. They don't realize that they are whole, complete in Christ. Well, the only way you get to that realization is by faith at the feet of Jesus. And then you understand that He is enough. He is sufficient. Nine were healed. Only one was made whole. And, and again... It's a great picture of salvation because all ten cried out for mercy. And all ten got it. That's, that's the salvation part, if you will, of the story. But only one, only one clearly saw what had been done to him. And it changed his life forever. And it gave him a commission and it gave him comfort. And he positioned himself in the right place in repentance. And he glorified God. And, and guys, listen, that's who we're called to be. That's who we're called to be individually. That's, that's who we're called to be corporately as a church. So my prayer for every one of us is, uh, don't look at your neighbor right now, but if they don't want to be the one, you be the one. 
You be the one. Be willing to turn your back on the majority. Be willing to not go with the flow of religion. (laughs) If nobody else is going to serve Jesus with their life, you can. Don't wait on your spouse to do it. You can. Don't wait on your kids to do it. You can. You can be the one. So let me encourage you with that today. Let's pray. We are out of time, so let's pray, and then we'll dismiss. Father, I do love you, Lord, and I thank you for your word.